I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. One of the dominant characters of the New Testament is a man by the name of Paul. Paul was a man that's life was radically changed by the gospel. As an interesting testimony, he originally tried to stamp out the gospel. He was a persecutor of Christians. He became so overwhelmed with the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel that Paul surrendered his life to Christ and became a great proclaimer of the gospel. Paul understood the gospel. When I say that, I mean that Paul understood that he was forgiven and given a relationship with God because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He knew the saving power of the gospel. But Paul also understood the power of the gospel on the other side of salvation. It is true that in in Christ, his death is our death. But Paul also understood that in the gospel, his life is now my life. And that's why Paul wrote those words in Galatians 2 when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul understood the reality of the gospel and the life-changing power of the gospel. So Paul gave his life to preach the gospel. One of the places that Paul went to preach the gospel was in a city. It was a major metropolitan area in the Roman Empire, the city of Corinth. Paul went into this city that was rooted in idolatry and paganism, and he preached the gospel for the very first time around A.D. 50. And some people gave their lives to Christ, and a brand new church was born there in the city of Corinth, like is happening in Hilo now through Zeke and Lane. A brand new church was born in that city in Corinth. But over the next few years, something happened. Some false teachers crept into the church at Corinth. And they began to try to convince people that, yes, it's Jesus, but it's Jesus plus. And they try to add all these do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs and rules and regulations to the gospel. To the point that Paul became very concerned and and stirred in his spirit because of his passion for the gospel. Paul wrote them a letter in A.D. 56. We have it in our Bibles as the book of 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 11, verse 3 of that book, I want to read you a sentence of Paul's letter that will give you an idea of his concern for them. Listen to what he said. He said, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. 
The word deceive there is a word that literally means in the Greek language to seduce. It's the idea of leading someone astray, usually by persuasion or false promises. And here's what Paul understood. Something that you and I need to understand today. We have an enemy. And if you think for a second we don't have an enemy, you're already in a dangerous situation. We have an enemy. And our enemy cannot steal away our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have nailed that down over the last few weekends as we've looked at the Word of God. There's nothing the enemy can do to remove our relationship with Jesus. But what our enemy can do is remove our usefulness for Jesus if he leads us away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. I'm afraid that all across our country today, there are people who fill churches like this every weekend that have been deceived. They've been led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. Doing a lot of good stuff. Doing all the right things. Trying to not do all the wrong things. But have missed the very essence of what Paul understood the gospel to be. The gospel is not God's invitation to a religion. The gospel is God's invitation to a relationship. For the last four weekends as a family, <coughs> excuse me, a family of faith. We have been studying through the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open it to John chapter 15. And I want to remind you of the context of this passage of Scripture. It is a very important time in the life of Jesus. In a few hours after Jesus speaks the words that we have recorded for us in John 15, in just a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be run through a series of mock trials, and then Jesus is going to be crucified for the sins of the world. What we're looking at is one of the last teaching moments Jesus has with his disciples. And so what he does in those moments is is of great significance. And Jesus takes them out into a vineyard, and he begins to use this vivid illustration, hopefully burning and searing into their conscience... This idea of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, in this series so far, we've unpacked some really important questions that I want to just quickly review for us tonight. First of all, we ask this question, what is fruit in the life of a believer? If you and I understand that as a branch, the sole reason that we exist is to bear fruit, it's important that we understand what fruit is. And we gave you a definition that I want to put back up on the screen, and I want you to read it out loud with me tonight. You ready? One, two, three. The life of Jesus in me being lived through me. That's what fruit is. Remember the illustration, the vine and the branches. Fruit is the life of whatever is in the vine being pressed out through the branches. Remember what I've said every weekend. If you got an apple tree, what's coming out of the branches? 
Apples, right? You got an orange tree, what's coming out? Oranges, why? Because fruit, agriculturally, is the life of whatever's in the vine being pressed out through the branches. Jesus said, he, I, am the vine, you are the branches. Fruit is the life of Jesus in us being lived through us. And we gave you a quote early on in the series that I want to give you again because I think after four weekends of looking at this, this quote will mean more to you now than it did in the beginning. It's by Major Ian Thomas, and look at what he said. It, speaking of Christianity, is not a matter of our doing our best for him, but of Christ being his best in us. All that he is in all that we are. And I love this part of the quote. Look what he says. The Christian life is nothing less than the life which he lived then, lived now by him in you. What a profound statement. The Christian life is nothing less than the life he lived then, lived now by him in you. That fits perfectly with what Jesus said. I'm the vine, you're the branches. My life in you and through you. So then we ask a second big question. If that's what fruit is, the second question we wrestled with is what's my role as a believer in bearing fruit? And if you remember when we looked through the first eight verses of John 15... Although Jesus over and over and over again says bear fruit, he never gives us a command to bear fruit. He doesn't look to us and say, you go bear fruit. There's only one command in the first eight verses of John 15. What is it? Abide. Some translations say continue, some say remain, but it's that principle of abiding in him. And remember what we said, the only thing that we can do as a branch, right, is hang on to the vine for all we're worth because our sole value is in bearing fruit. And the only hope we have to do that is the life of the vine being pressed out in and through us. So our role is not to work hard at trying to be a good Christian. Jesus didn't save us so that we could live full. Him, Jesus saved us so that He could live through us. If you got that, say amen. amen. You say amen better than the morning service. I'll just be honest with you. This is starting to become my favorite service. I like you guys. Listen, let me give you the definition of abide. Abide, we said, is this to live in fellowship with Jesus every moment of every day. That's what it is to abide. It's to live every moment of every day in fellowship with Jesus, to live my life out of the overflow of intimacy with him. So then we wrestled with a third big question. What's the father's role? If Christ is the vine, we're the branches. The father's the vine. So what's his role? And we said simply there are two things that the father's always doing. He's always looking for those branches that through a lack of abiding have kind of fallen by the wayside, they're not bearing fruit. And the Father doesn't come to look and throw them away. We said He's constantly at work lifting them up and putting them by His grace back in a position of fruitfulness. And then He is continuously removing those things that are unnecessary that keep us from bearing more fruit. That process of disciplining and pruning us so that our lives become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now what we want to do tonight 
is we want to ask a fourth big question. And this question is going to take us the next three weekends, this weekend and two more, to unpack, and it'll finish this series in John 15. Here's the fourth big question. What does fruit look like in the life of a believer? It's one thing for us to say, by definition, it's the life of Jesus in us being lived through us. And we all go, yeah, I get that. The life of the vine. Man, that's awesome. Man, I'm glad I know what fruit is, right? But what does that look like practically? The life of Jesus in me being lived through me is true, but on a day in and day out basis, what does that begin to look like flesh out in my life? Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus took the first eight verses. He gave us the illustration and he taught us these principles. Then in verse 9, he begins to transition and he gives us several examples of what it looks like for his life to be fleshed out in our lives. Now, let me just give you a disclaimer up front. Over the next three weekends, we are not going to exhaustively answer that question, all right? There's no way to do that. But we are going to give some examples of what it looks like. So look back in your text at John 15. I want to begin reading in verse 8. And read a couple of verses for us tonight. Here's what he said. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now verse 9. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. In those two verses, verses 9 and 10 in particular, Jesus begins to give us some examples, and I want to give it to you in two statements tonight. Here's the first one. A fruitful life is a life of intimacy. A fruitful life is a life of intimacy. Now, We've allowed the world to take the word intimacy and distort it and abuse it so that we don't really understand what it means any longer. But the word intimacy simply means a close, personal relationship. That's what intimacy is really talking about. A close, personal relationship. Now, if you and I are going to talk about fruit being the life of Jesus in us, being lived through us, then it's very important we understand what the life of Jesus looked like, right? I'm not just talking about the historical aspects of Jesus having died on a cross and rose again from the dead. I'm talking about an examination of the Gospels to see how Jesus interacted with people, to see how Jesus handled situations and circumstances in his life, to see how Jesus ordered and structured and prioritized his day. When we begin to examine his life in the Gospels, then we can begin to understand what fruit looks like. Now, when you begin to do that, and you walk through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is a dominant characteristic in the life of Jesus that rises to the surface, and you can summarize it with four words. Intimacy with the Father. When you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, You cannot read those Gospels without over and over and over again understanding that Jesus lived his life out of the overflow of intimacy with the Father. So much so that the defining mark of Jesus' life was his close, personal 
relationship with the Father. One of the things that, that you have to understand in reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John obviously were written by four different individuals, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. But why did he give us four Gospels? Well, here's why. Because through each of the Gospel writers, you get a different perspective into the life of Jesus. Sometimes they don't even tell us the same stories. Different gospel writers include different stories from the life of Jesus because personally they were impacted by those stories in a unique way. But even when they tell the same stories, you sometimes get to look at those stories from a different angle because you're hearing that story through the lens of a different eyewitness. But what's interesting is even though all of the gospel writers write from different perspectives, All of them capture the essence of this idea of Jesus living his life out of the overflow of intimacy with the Father. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. In Luke chapter 22, Luke is writing about the same story that John is writing about in John 15. The story where they were in the upper room, they go from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, from the Garden of Gethsemane to the cross. Luke, in Luke 22, is writing about the same story. But he tells us some details John doesn't give us. I want you to look at it on the screen. In Luke twenty two thirty nine. 39, look what it says. And he came out and proceeded. Now, that came out and proceeded is meaning that when he, he and the disciples came out of the upper room and were headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane, look what it says. He came out and proceeded. Read the next four words out loud with me. As was his custom. You can underline that in your Bible if you want to because it's very important. To the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. John told us he went to the Mount of Olives. Luke says it was his custom. Now that's important. Why is it important? Because that little phrase, as was his custom, is a phrase that in the Greek language describes a lifestyle practice. Here's what that means this trip to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, wasn't a one-time deal in the life of Jesus because it was a big event going on in his life. It was the regular pattern and practice of his life to slip away to the Mount of Olives. What did he do there? Well, Luke goes on and tells us in verse 41, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what he prayed, but you go back to John's gospel and you find out what he prayed. In John chapter 17, you get the record of that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that was one of the most dramatic, intense, intimate conversations ever recorded between God the Father and God the Son. But Luke tells us this wasn't a unique circumstance in Jesus' life. Luke says Jesus was always, it was the pattern of his life to slip away to the Mount of Olives to be alone with the Father. Every gospel writer captures this. Let me show you some examples. Matthew chapter 14, verse 23. Look up on the screen. Listen to what he says. And after he had sent the crowds away. Now, before we read the rest of it, isn't that kind of an interesting statement? Didn't Jesus come for the crowds? Didn't he come for the multitudes? Look what it says. After he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to what? To pray. Here's what we need to take away from that. Jesus would often walk away from ministry to pursue intimacy. 
Because he understood that ministry flows out of intimacy. He would send the multitudes away. We'd say, Jesus, what are you doing? He would send them away to go be alone. Listen to what it says. He would send the crowds away, go up to a mountain by himself to pray. And it says, when it was evening, he was there alone. That's what Matthew says. Let me show you another one. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Listen to what Mark says. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was said out loud. Praying there. You see it? Matthew said, sometimes in the evening, Jesus would send the multitudes away to go be alone with the Father. Mark said, sometimes Jesus would get up before the sun even rose when it was still dark, and he would go be alone with the Father. Then look what Luke tells us. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the, say it out loud, whole night in prayer to God. When's the last time we did that, right? You hear what they're saying? These are different writers. These are different men who for three and a half years walked with Jesus. Matthew says, man, sometimes he'd send the multitudes away in the evening and go be alone with God. Mark says, sometimes he'd get up before the sun even rose. Before anybody else was awake, he'd go be alone with the Father. Luke said, sometimes he'd go spend the whole night alone with the Father. Then in John chapter 14, John says this. He quotes Jesus when Jesus says, Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative. Listen to this. But the Father abiding in me does his work. Hear what Jesus said? When you hear me speak, it's not me speaking. It's the Father speaking. Through me. He said, when you see my works, it's not my works. It's the Father's works in me. Now, don't miss this. Jesus was 100% God in the flesh. He had all authority and could do anything he wanted to do. But he modeled for us in his humanity what it looked like to live in complete dependence on the Father. So that everything he did. He did out of the overflow of his intimate fellowship with the Father. Now, now, if that's who Jesus was when he was here, and fruit is his life being fleshed out in my life, what do you think it's going to look like today as he begins to live his life through me? Let me tell you what it's going to look like. Intimacy with the Father. And I had this thought when I was preparing this, writing this, this message before the Lord. I had this thought. What if four people followed you around for three and a half years? And at the end of three and a half years, they were going to write a record of your life to be passed on for future generations. Would the dominant characteristic of your life be intimacy with the Father? I mean, they all told stories, different perspectives, but there's one thing they all got. (laughs) Morning, noon, night, sometimes all night. 
pattern of his life was to be alone with the Father. What would those who know you best say is the dominant characteristic of your life? You see how easily we're led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus? We can substitute in there a thousand good things that we're doing to be a good Christian. And so subtly and so easily, the enemy has seduced us from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. Look back at John 15, verse 9. Listen to what Jesus said. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. That, that, that statement should cause every one of us to shout hallelujah. Did you hear what Jesus just compared his love for us to? He said, just as the Father has loved me, that's the very same love that I'm loving you with. And then here's what he says. Abide in my love. That's not him saying, you love me. No, that's him saying, you need to just rest in my love for you. Listen to the way James Montgomery Boyce described it. He said, Jesus says that he loved us, not with an imperfect or even a perfect human love, but rather with the greatest love there is. Name the, the love which has existed within the being of the Godhead from all eternity and which will exist to all eternity. The love of the Father for him. <clears throat> this love is without beginning or end. It is without measure. It is without change. It is according to the measure of this great love and consequently with that love itself that Christ loves us. Wow. So here's the first thing I want you to kind of wrestle with when we're talking about now practically what this looks like. Am I growing in my love relationship with the Father personally and daily? Is the life of Jesus in me being lived through me? Here's a, here's a question to ask. Am I growing in my love relationship with the Father? Am I growing in intimacy with God? Well, that changes the way we look at some of this surface stuff that we call being a good Christian, right? But Jesus says this, this, this number one. It's the first expression that he gives us of what it looks like practically. If you got that one, say amen. All right, let me give you a second one. A fruitful life is a life of obedience. It's a life of obedience. 
Look back at verse 10. He said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, before I unpack that verse, let me remind you. We look at John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and we think, man, that's, a week's, that's several weeks worth of reading and study in the Bible, right? But you got to remember, the disciples got all that in one setting with Jesus in about a three-hour period. Information overload, right? I mean, they were plugged in, and he was just pouring it out. So everything Jesus said in John 13 and 14, when he said that in John 15, was still ringing in their ears. So here's what I want you to understand. When Jesus said that in John 15, 10, he'd already said the exact same thing four times in the last 30 or 40 minutes. Let me show it to you. John chapter 14, verse 15 Look what the Bible says. I'm going to put all these on the screen. You can look at it right there in your scripture. It says, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Then in John 14, 21, look what he said. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. Then in John 14, 23, he said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Then we just read it in John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And in just another couple of verses, John 15, 14, he said, you are my friends if you do what I command. In about a 45 minute period of time, Jesus repeats that statement five different times. And he didn't do it because he forgot. He just said it. He was wanting them to understand something. Let me give you the general conclusion of what he was wanting them to understand. There is a direct relationship between our love of God and our obedience to God. There's a direct relationship. I want you to read that out loud with me. One, two, three. There is a direct relationship between our love for God and our obedience to God. If you believe that, say amen. Listen, every born-again Christian that I've ever met would agree with that statement. There's a direct relationship between my love for God and my obedience to God. There's a direct line there. The problem is... There are two ways we take that statement and apply it to our lives. One of them is grossly wrong. But unfortunately, it's where many Christians live. Many Christians take that statement. There's a direct, I mean, Jesus said it five times. There's a direct relationship between our love for him and our obedience to him. Many Christians take that, and here's the way they apply it. I must show God I love him. By obeying Him. I got to prove to God that I love Him by obeying Him. And when we apply it that way, our focus is on obeying Him, right? Because that's what I've got to do. I've got to show God I love Him. I've got to prove to to Him that I love Him. So I've got to focus on doing all the right things, not doing all the wrong things. If you're applying that relationship between love and obedience this way, the mantra of your life is something like this. In order to be a good Christian, I must blank, and you fill in the blank. There's a thousand ways to fill in the blank. 
But in order to be a good Christian, I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this. And then, oh, yeah, there's this whole list of stuff I can't do, right? If I'm going to be a good Christian, I can't do this, and I can't do this, and I can't do this, and I can't do this. And we spend our lives trying to muster up enough willpower to live this life that we think is what Christianity is supposed to be. And no matter how hard we try, we never measure up. Because this focus on obedience always leads to failure. If you are somebody who's saying, I'm going to try hard to be a good Christian, let me ask you a question. How's that working out for you? There's another way to apply this conclusion. Here's the way we can apply it. Where there is love for God, Obedience overflows. Now when you understand it that way, the focus is not on obedience. The focus is on loving the Father. Right? Because when I love Him, and I focus on developing a love relationship with Him obedience begins to spill out of my life as the overflow of intimacy with Him. Now, don't miss this. It's not that obedience doesn't matter. If you've heard me teach over the last four weeks and you think what I'm teaching is a principle that obedience doesn't matter, listen, you've missed everything I've been saying. It's not that obedience doesn't matter. Obedience does matter. But the question is, where does my obedience come from? Am I trying to obey God to prove something? Am I trying to muster up enough strength and determination? And we, Listen, here's what's sad. In America today, in the Christian world, we live from emotional high to emotional high. Recommitment to recommitment. Conference, seminar, and workshop to conference, seminar, and workshop. Trying to muster up enough conviction to try to live this life that we think the Christian life is. When God never intended for you and I to live the Christian life, He intended for us to die, find our sufficiency in Him, abide in Christ, and let Jesus live his life through us. And when Jesus, when Jesus lives his life through us, let me tell you what it looks like. Obedience to the Father. Let me show it to you. John 15, 10. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. But notice this. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You hear the just as? Jesus says, your relationship between love and obedience is going to be just like mine. Now, did Jesus try to obey the Father so he could prove to the Father that he loved him? No. As a matter of fact, listen to what he just said in John 14, 31. He just said, but so that the world may know. That I love the Father. Not, not so the Father may That the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. You know what it looks like when the life of Jesus in me begins to be lived through me? Intimacy that produces obedience. And let me tell you what that is. It's Christ-likeness. And isn't that the goal? Let me give you a reality statement. Obedience is the fruit 
not the focus of the life of a believer. So here's the second thing I want you to wrestle with. If I want to examine my heart, am I bearing fruit? The first thing we got to wrestle with is am I growing in intimacy and fellowship with the Father? But here's the second thing we got to wrestle with. Is my life a life of obedience to the Father, born out of intimacy with the Father? Because here's the real issue. If I got an obedience problem, I got a love problem. If I got an area of my life where I struggle to obey the Father, let me tell you what that means. And this hurts me to even say it because it hurts in my own heart. But here's what it means. I love me and I love my sin more than I love him. That's what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, Vance, if you love me, you obey me. When I have a problem obeying him, I don't need to try harder to obey. I need to go be with him. Let him cultivate an intimacy in my heart that responds to him in a life of obedience. It's his life in me. If you see that, say amen. Let me close with this warning. In the book of Revelation, Jesus writes at the opening in chapters 2 and 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn over there. If not, we'll have it up on the screen. Revelation chapter 2. Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches. They were real churches in the day. But they also represent Christianity throughout the centuries and different examples of what it looks like to live out our Christian faith. Jesus writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. I want you to listen to what he says in chapter 2, beginning in verse number 2. Here's what he said. I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And if he stopped right there, the church at Ephesus could say, man, we rock. Right? I mean, Jesus is writing all this to them saying, man, you're doing this good. You're doing this good. And man, this is awesome. And I love this about you. But look at verse 4. But... Boy, you never want to hear Jesus say that, do you? (laughs) But I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Here's what he says. You're doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. If obedience is not born out of intimacy. It has no use in the kingdom of God. Then look what he says to him in verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen. Listen to me. If you can look back in your life 
and see a time when you are more in love with Jesus than you are today, you're in a dangerous place. On the outside, you may still be holding it all together and people looking at you may go, man, that's a good Christian. But if your intimacy with God is not where it used to be, hear Jesus. Remember from where you've fallen. And then look what he says. And repent. Wait a minute, they were doing a lot of good stuff. What do you mean repent? And repent. Means to turn from something to something else. Turn from dead works. Turn from religion. Turn from just out and out morality. To intimacy with God. Remember where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Those deeds born, the obedience that was born out of intimacy. Or look what he says, or else, scary phrase, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. But what does that mean? Well, in biblical times, a lamp basically looked like a little saucer. Had some oil in the saucer and a wick that would stand in that oil. But the lamp, because it was just a saucer, it really had no use. You couldn't hold it in your hand without a lampstand. You had to have a lampstand, and the lampstand was the place of prominence in the household where they would sit, that little lamp, that little saucer filled with oil in the wick. They would light that, and it gave it its position of usefulness in the house. Here's what Jesus said. You're doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. You need to fall back in love with me or I'm going to take away your usefulness. I'm going to remove your lampstand. And it makes sense because he said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Jesus says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit. What does that look like? Intimacy with God that produces obedience to God. For apart from me, you can do nothing.